0: Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast. Brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina. Underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. All right, um, I'm going to talk about a few things. Uh, First things first. This is uh, essay number one, kind of an outline, and I wanted to explain it a little bit. I want to give you guys a lot of leeway on this assignment, and it, you can see at the top it's due uh, in about two weeks, and I really prefer you to bring it to class, so I have a hard copy. I know everything's done digitally nowadays, but since we're meeting anyway, um, if you have trouble printing a hard copy, send it to me in an email attachment, and let me know that you're having trouble getting it printed, and I'll print it for you. It's not a big deal. But um, three to 500 words, that's a big range, too. 300 words is about a page and change, maybe, type, double space. Um, But I put these writing prompts underneath it to kind of guide your thought process. And this is really, you have a lot of subjectivity as to what you put down here. But the idea is business dream. If you could dream any business that you would want to open, what would it be? And there's a couple reasons for this activity. Number one, it involves critical thinking because you actually have to, like, Think about what am I going to do here. It involves writing, which writing is a big part of communication and professionalism. So, um, but the next thing is down here, these writing prompts, you do not have to answer every single one of these questions in your essay. Uh, but these prompts can give you some ideas of questions you might want to consider and answer as you describe what your business would look like. And so if you could go into business today, what, your, what would your business be? Uh, why would you want to go into that business? What would your logo look like? Hey, sir, how are you? Um, what would you be selling, a product or service? I'm sorry, would you be selling a product or service? Who would your customers be? Why would your customers shop with you instead of someone else? Who would your competition be? How would you fund your business? How much money would you need to start your business? Where would your business be located? What is the story of your business? To elaborate on that a little bit, in my opinion, the best the best businesses have a story. If it's If it's something that... A story that you can tell um, that will say, you know, this is why I went in this business because, you know, my family has done this before, and I think this is uh, a good opportunity. So try to think of a story that would be your your business's story. Um, why is your business essential? Why would why would you want to go in this business? Why is it needed? Does your business address a need or a want for consumers? Doesn't matter which, but if you if you're doing something that Somebody needs to have, like food, people need food, that's addressing a need. A want would be something like, you know, designer clothing or jewelry that's nice, but it's not necessarily an essential. And how much would you charge for your partner service? Once again, you do not have to answer every single question. These are just prompts to get you to think about how you would construct your essay. And just so you know, a basic essay outline, I know you probably all have seen this before, but just in case. You start out with an introduction, so intro, and this is where you introduce your ideas, one, two, three, whatever they're going to be, and then you usually have a number of paragraphs which you elaborate on your ideas, whatever they are, and then a conclusion that kind of wraps up everything. This is telling the the person what I am going to say. This is, this is the preview. All this right here is me saying it. Say it. And this down here, the conclusion is what I said. Basic essay writing. And believe it or not, this basic outline for essay writing is applicable to so many things in life. Uh, when, you, when you go into a professional environment and start working, and you do a memo, you so, say, hey guys, this you have a, um, a subject, this is what we're talking about. This is me concisely telling you what it's about, what, what's involved, and then the conclusion is the wrap-up. Okay, this is what we discussed, this is why it's important. Um, I'll say this, if you guys decide to continue with your education beyond the community college, uh, it tends to, writing things like this gets to be longer. So you might do one-page papers in community college, two-page, three-page, maybe. Uh, sometimes maybe five or ten. But if you go to the four-year level, you might be doing 10 to 20-page papers, you know. And then if you go to graduate school, you might be writing even longer papers, who knows. But um, when I started getting towards the end of graduate school, the reverse happened. They wanted me to say the same thing with less words. So here's 10 pages, tell me the same story in, in two pages. And that means you're really trying to be concise and powerful in what you say. Get the most information out with the least amount of words. And this is an activity to help you build on constructing your essay ability. At the bottom, you can see there's uh, 10%. This is a rubric: 10% for spelling and grammar, 10% for word count, um, organization is 20%, format 20%, and content is 40%. So, um, and then I'm going to actually use this rubric to assess your papers and give you some feedback on that. Um, I've had all different types of assessments over the years on reviewing all different types of things work that I've done and I like to give you guys feedback so you can learn from it so questions or comments with regards to the essay should be not difficult email me with questions if you have any all right other thing I was going to talk about I'm going to try to remember to bring in a book every class period just to talk to you about guys about books my grandmother was an educator my mother was an educator my grandmother was really big into reading uh, and um, I have over probably five or six hundred books at the house. I try to get my kids to read. They don't like reading. It's okay. My middle child does, but she doesn't read as much as I would like her. My oldest child doesn't read at all, and uh, I, I text her today trying to get her to read something. To just you kind of lose yourself in books sometimes, and it de-stresses you. It helps. It helps improve your uh, comprehension, improves your vocabulary, and it just does does a lot of things for you, and you you learn something so. But this is a a book, this is the first book I'm going to show you, it's called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us by Daniel Pink. And I got this book um, at a library sale this summer, but I actually read it for the first time almost 10 years ago now. And um, this book actually inspired me to write my dissertation about motivation. Uh, It really changed the way I thought about motivation. I used to think that motivation was about how you can incentivize somebody to do something hey, if you come here and do this work, I'll give you money. Or, hey, if you don't do a good job, I'm going to punish you and write you up and maybe fire you. And those incentives only work so well. You know, like if somebody hates working for you or hates the work, it doesn't matter how much you pay them or what type of threats you offer them. That after some times, if they're not connected with it, they're going to leave. They're just not happy. So the goal of this book and this idea of uh, intrinsic motivation is to connect with things that matter to you. And if it matters to you and, you, and you're and you motivated by it, the work will be better. And so one reason why teachers teach and we, we're here to do what we do is because we like doing this type of work and the really good teachers are driven to, to do good work. Um, there's another word that uh, that jumps out of this book at me and it's the word autonomy. Who knows what autonomy means? Any ideas? So autonomy is a really important word. It means that you have control over your life. You have autonomy. And, you know, if you go work for an employer and say you must be here at 8 a.m., you must take a 30-minute lunch, you must uh, stay till 5 p.m., no using of your phone, you cannot text, you cannot make personal phone calls. If you need to go to the bathroom, you must let your supervisor know you can only take one bathroom break per shift. You do get a seven-minute break after four hours of work. That doesn't sound very fun, does it? I mean, those types of constraints. I saw an article yesterday, uh, Amazon warehouse worker. Don't know if it's true or not, but they said they've changed the rules for Amazon warehouse work at this location. Like I said, I'm just reporting what I read. And he said that he only gets like one bathroom break for every five to six hours, and they now have to report to their supervisor before. They have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. They have trackers on them. And if you're not in the zone that you're supposed to be in doing the work you're supposed to be doing, it creates an exception that notifies a supervisor on a little pager to say, hey, Bobby is not where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be loading freight here, but they're over here. What's going on? And that type of lack of autonomy really jacks with people's motivation. And um, if you work in an environment where you feel constrained and, and don't have a lot of autonomy, it will it really decrease your motivation. So... This is a really good book. I do highly recommend it. I actually got this book, uh, this version of this book for a dollar at a library sale, and I saw it. I had it before, and I gave it away, so I picked up this copy. Uh, it's got this little mess on it, but I don't care about that. So, But Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, um, just throwing that out there if in case you have any interest in that. At least you know uh, kind of what it's about. So any questions or comments about the essay or the book so far? All right. We're gonna jump into chapter three, talking about doing business in a in global markets. Um, reminder, real quick: chapter two quiz is due tonight. Uh, anybody having trouble locating that? I think most of you send McGraw Hill Connect. Okay, Yeah, send McGraw Hill Connect. i uh, think confusion. I had
1: just noticed that the very first one, as soon as you pulled it up,
0: it was in just right there, like a right. Okay, it's got a, you. This one wasn't up there. So okay. Oh, yep. no, it said no due an H-7. I got you. Um, I might not have put a, a hard due date on that, so that might be why there, it's probably on the, the schedule and not the hard due date on the in the system. But just we're, we're still following the, the course schedule. So, but yeah, if you go on your McGraw Hill, there should be a a list of assignments and other things like um, SmartBook and other things you can do that are not necessarily graded. But just go down to um, Chapter Two Assessment is what it's called and do that. And it's, it's, it's not too difficult. If you have uh, uh, did the reading, take some notes, come to the lecture, you should be okay. So, All right. So global business, global markets. We live in a global economy now. That's no secrets. And uh, the learning objectives for this chapter include discussing the importance of global markets and the roles of comparative advantage and absolute advantage in global trade, explain the importance of importing and exporting, and understand the key terms used in global business, illustrate the strategies used in reaching global markets and explain the role of multinational corporations, evaluate the forces that affect trading in global markets, debate the advantages and disadvantages of trade protectionism, and discuss the changing landscape of global markets and the issue of offshore outsourcing. So a lot of different things to talk about in this chapter. Um, Anybody like Krispy Kreme donuts? Everybody a fan, kind of? You like the original Blaze donut? Is that your favorite? Yeah. Um, I started, this popped up on my news feed about two or three weeks ago, and uh, Krispy Kreme was having a bad day on the market. They were declining in, in their sales, or uh, declining in their stock price because they missed the mark on their earnings. And so I started looking into it, and it's a North Carolina-based company. It started in Charlotte, or they're based in Charlotte, uh, but it is a NC-based company. So I started digging around and looking at it, and they actually were bought out by a German company so this North Carolina-based company is now was owned by a German company, and they listed it for public uh, did a public listing last year, but it's still about forty to forty-five percent owned by this German company. So they own a large uh, amount of this company, and um, it's just fascinating to read what they're doing now with this global strategy. Their their strategy is this: um, th- for the longest time, they were trying to franchise, which is you know, sell the, the, the right to open one to individuals and they would open up their own franchise location and start selling donuts. Well, now they're going to this thing called defranchising. I had never heard this term before until three, two, three three weeks ago. And as it turns out, defranchising is where the corporation buys back franchises from individuals. And so they're in, they've been buying back franchises pretty rapidly. There were about close to 400 individual franchisees out there, and now they've whittled that down to 66. There's only 66 independently owned fr- uh, Krispy Kreams in the world right now. And so what they're doing, their strategy is, they're trying to buy up all the franchisees so they can reap all the revenue for themselves and keep all the revenues for the company. And so in the short term, that's hurt, hurt their profit because they're having to spend money to buy the franchisees, but in the long term, they're gonna get all the extra revenue. So revenue's been going up on their balance sheet, but profitability's been going down. Really interesting case. But when when we talk about global trade, I just wanted to share with you that you'd be surprised the ownership of some of the brands and things in this country now because there's people from all over the world that have a stake in American commerce. And on the opposite, we have stakes all over the world too where commerce, American commerce, is reached abroad. So interesting stuff. So CEO of Apple is Tim Cook. (laughs) He grew up in Alabama and received an MBA from Duke University. I've heard of that place. Uh, Worked for IBM for 12 years after becoming COO. Went to work for Apple in 1998. Streamlined the supply chain, managed worldwide sales and operations before becoming the CEO after Steve Jobs' death. Apple has since grown substantially amidst global challenges. Um, Say what you will about Steve, uh, not Steve Jobs, but Tim Cook. He's been a tremendous manager for Apple. yeah, Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple after leaving, I don't know if you knew, but Steve Jobs got fired. They took they took him out of his own company, and when they brought him back, uh, he let, soon after introduced the iPod, and then the iPhone, and then it just took off from there. At one point, Apple's stock was down to like $2 a share. It was almost bankrupt, and uh, almost out of business, but they were able to save it. But Cook has just continued to streamline things and, and make sure that they have the supply chain, and... They even brought some of this stuff in-house. <clears throat> One of the biggest supply chains issues we've had over the past few years has been microchips. Have you heard about those? Hard to get chips because they're in everything. <clears throat> they're in computers, they're in cars, they're in televisions, they're in um, cell phones, they're in comp- all kinds of stuff. And so in order to deal with that headwind of supply chain, Apple said we're going to start making our own microchips. And so Apple, I believe last year or within the past two years, they started manufacturing their own chips in order to... Uh, get ahead of that supply chain issue, and the United States government knows what a challenge it is to manage that supply chain with microchips, and so we just, you might have heard about this, guys, Uh, I don't know what the bill was, um, but it was having to deal with microchips, and they they signed a multi-billion dollar bill, uh, bill, over $300 billion that's going to be committed to (coughs) creating supply chain uh, of microchips in the United States. And so that's, we're doing that for a competitive advantage purpose because if we continue to rely on third parties like China and other places that create these microchips, that puts us at a, at a significant disadvantage, uh, having to be reliant on that. If we create it in-house, that, that way we don't have to uh, wait for those things to get to us. And so dynamic global market, the business, business in the global market, global business is expanding rapidly. So we talk about population a lot in this class because that's something that we uh, need to be aware of globally, but also locally. I to—I don't want to mess up the demographics, but I believe Johnston County has around 220,000 residents, and we're going to be at 300,000 residents by 2030. Huge boom. This is the fastest growing county in the state of North Carolina. It's pretty impressive. But knowing that microeconomy population and looking at global population, can kind of give you a sense that if you open an online business today, whether you realize or not, you're global at this point. I mean, like, I had a small eBay business. And I was selling stuff to people in South Africa, selling to people in Asia. I sold stuff to people in England, South America. And I was like, really? You guys want to pay that shipping? Go ahead. But they, that's, people do that. And so um, let's talk about importing and exporting. Importing is when we buy products from another country. Exporting is when we're selling products to another country. Why would we do that to begin with? What, what, what brings about the reason why we would need to import and export? What do you think? Why would, why would we have that to begin with? Why would we do importing and exporting? Prices. What do you mean? Stuff's so cheaper. Labor's cheaper in other countries. Labor's cheaper in other countries, right. So there's this word called arbitrage, and what we're doing is that we're arbitraging the labor. What we're doing is taking advantage of lower prices for products and services in another country, then we bring them over here and can sell them for a higher price. Um, there's a great documentary one of my college instructors showed me back in 1998 called Roger and Me, um, and in this documentary, it talks about the demise of the automotive industry in Michigan, and what was happened is General Motors was taking these companies, taking them from Michigan, and bring them over to Mexico and open them up over there because labor was a third or less than it was the United States. And when your labor costs go down by that much, all the, all the difference between that labor cost goes right to the bottom line. And so profitability goes up. Uh, even when you factor in shipping, having to bring stuff back stateside. So, um, but yeah, importing, exporting, we do that because another reason is that certain countries specialize in certain products and services. You know, um, what's one good thing that we're really good at in America, at production of? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're really good at agriculture in America. We grow, we, we've got the world, we're the world leader in several crops. Uh, sweet potatoes is one of them. We produce more sweet potatoes in North Carolina than any other place on earth. Uh, but other countries have, have contrary products, you know. Like uh, every country has something to offer that's a resource that another country might need. And so it pays to specialize. Why would we focus on something that we're not good at or focus on something that we just don't have resources for, you know? And so by importing and exporting, we're allowed to specialize in what we're good at and allowed to bring in other stuff that we may not be so good at and sell those folks things that we're really good at producing. And so global sports, it may not be what the rest of the world calls football, but American football is attracting an audience outside the United States. London's Wembley Stadium has been home to NFL's International Series since 2007, and the league recently signed an agreement for 10 more years. What cultural factors must U.S. sports franchises overcome in order to increase popularity abroad? This is an interesting question. So if I know that I'm going to take American football and I want to increase the appeal to a global audience, because you've got to – what is USA, 350 million people roughly – versus a 7.7 billion billion global population. So there's literally 7 billion people roughly that are not an audience that we can get to around the world. So that being said, there's cultural barriers though. So what what cultural barriers do we have here that other people might not appreciate? Think about what's inherently goes into football to begin with. It's a violent sport. Some cultures don't dig that. And another thing that's a cultural barrier is excess. When you think about football, I think about how much money we pay these players, millions and millions of dollars, a lot of flash, glitz, and glamor. Some cultures don't don't like that. They like reservation, they like to be reserved, not living life in excess. And so those are barriers that prevent us from being popular in countries that have cultural barriers against those types of things. Anything else you can think of? So the violence one, the, the excess that's associated with NFL? I think it's more attractive when you, if you have more international players, other teams from other countries. They have somebody from, they can relate to from their own country. I like that. So if we had more international players in the NFL, that would be a barrier we could not break down. I like that a lot. Yeah. What do you think?
1: Right.
0: A lot of other countries play. They
1: might not have an NBA like we do but Sure. I like that. So kind of bring in more
0: of those international programs to find players. Sure. Another barrier is, like, basketball is really cheap to start. Football is a really expensive sport to start. Right. So, like, these other countries probably don't have it as a high school sport because it's a really expensive sport to start at. I wonder if we could ever have an international, like, Football league, you know, like I mean, because in Europe football they compete against different countries, you know, and the NFL is national, you know. I mean, it's it's just so we have to have Canadian
1: football
0: right. But I'm saying we don't do a lot of international com- competition right. in, in football, you know. So I don't know. Do you guys remember the XFL? Mm-hmm. Anybody remember that? That didn't work out. You know, wonder why it didn't work out.
1: Quality
0: of it was it was an indoor like high AstroTurf type yeah. stuff, right? It wasn't.
1: XFL, I think, was outdoors, though. It
0: was? It was? Uh, yeah, it was. That, you're talking about the, uh, like the Arena, League.
1: Something Arena League. Arena uh, League. Arena League, okay. That's, is that what it was? The XFL died out because of COVID.
0: Really? Because their season starts after the NFL season. Yes. Yeah, so it so just, like, and okay. Just right. right. It came not interrupt well. <laughs> All right. Any other comments on this, any other cultural barriers you might think of? All right. So the world population by continent, this is interesting to look at. Because it's very informative in just a quick glance. And you can see we only have less than 5% of the world population in North America. In fact, this entire uh, western hemisphere, you've got North and South America, only account for about 10% of the entire world population. So the other 90% is located in Africa, Europe, Asia, and Oceania. That's pretty pretty wild to look at. Asia with 60% of the world population. thats That's, that's fascinating. But... What does that say to you when you see that? If you're an American entrepreneur, what does that say to you? A lot more people Absolutely, yeah. Like, if I could get, if I've got five percent of the world population right here, if I could just get some of that over here, I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity, and people around the world have pretty universal wants and needs. You know, I mean, we all want to be comfortable. We want nice clothes. We want good good quality services. So, yeah, if there's a way we can take advantage of that, you know, there, there's, there's, there's opportunities there. And there's opportunities here, too. I mean, the population is going to keep increasing in the United States and, and North America. So, all right. So this is a very simplistic, but it is going to, we talked about we're going to cap out around $9 billion, uh, around 2050. So we'll see if that comes true. All right, so uh, pleasure doing business, best countries for business. United Kingdom's ranked number one, Sweden number two, Hong Kong number three, Netherlands, New Zealand, Canada, Singapore, Australia, Switzerland. Where's what's missing? What's missing? United United States, yeah. What is it that these countries might do that we might not be doing? What do you think? Tell me about your best customer service experience. What is it that makes it amazing? Fast and efficient. Fast and efficient, yeah. Right. we got a lot of cultural animosity in the United States. Like, if I don't know you, I don't want to talk to you. You know, like, I mean, there's this, there's this communication barrier that exists in our society where, I don't know, it's just, I think in the South... I don't know. I th- I've heard that people that come down south think Southerners are friendly. I don't know because I live here if that's a fair assessment or not. It's are you are you from somewhere else? Yeah, I'm from Ohio. Okay. Is are people friendly in the South? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. are people friendly in Ohio? No. Really? Yeah. Okay. They're very just like
1: straight up and like
0: yeah. honest. And right. Very like or respectful, and all. Sure. So, um, you like living in the South? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, good. I, you know, my aunt and uncle lived in uh, Pennsylvania for a while, and uh, I've been in New York, and Northerners have a stereotype, and stereotypes are not necessarily reality, because I know a lot of Northerners, and I know some very friendly Northerners, but there's a stereotype that Northerners are not as friendly as Southerners. I don't know if that's a true stereotype, but it it's nevertheless exists. There's a stereotype that Southerners are ignorant because we have a country accent. You know I mean? That can't be true, you know, but it's a stereotype that exists. Uh, I have a friend from California, and they have their own stereotypes, you know. So um, you have to be careful with those stereotypes because they're not necessarily a signifier of reality. But this is a metric that's interesting because um, these countries are doing something that give them a competitive advantage for being the best country to do business in. Uh, part of it could be taxation. Uh, that could be part of it. Uh, part of it could be... Uh, the population you just you just don't know all the metrics that went into this but I did notice the United States is missing so um, can you spare a dime home countries for some of the world's billionaires so even though we're not the best country to do business on that top 10 list we do have our home to most of the world's billionaires not it might be the majority I hadn't added up the bottom six seven here but it's close Um Let's see, 3, four, fifteen, five, fifteen. Yeah, it's almost a 50%, around 40% of the world's billionaires leave the United States. China's got the second most, Germany, Russia, United Kingdom, Switzerland, Hong Kong, and India. Um, wow, that's interesting to, to look at. So, uh, resources and product. Countries with abundance, natural resources like Venezuela need technological resources from other countries like Japan. Yeah, this is what I was talking about with importing and exporting. It doesn't matter if you've got all the oil in the world. If you don't have the technology to logistically get it out of the ground and move it, then, it's, then it's not, it doesn't matter. So you have to be able to use resources from other countries to leverage that. So global trade allows countries to produce what they make uh, the best and buy what they need from others. We do have this idea of free trade, the movement of goods and services, among nations without political or economic barriers. For the longest time in, in North America, we had what's called NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. Have anybody heard that before? We actually just redid NAFTA recently. It's, uh, it's not called NAFTA anymore. It's called a little different spin on it, but for all intents and purposes, it's still NAFTA. Um, and some people, you're going to have critics and you're going to have supporters regardless of what you do. But on the pro side of NAFTA, it allows for uh, a more free trade. But on the con side... Um, it also allows for um, this arbitrage that we talked about. So you get cheaper labor in another country, sure, you're going to move your business to another country where you can uh, capitalize on cheaper labor and then bring that product back and sell it, you know, at that same price and keep the difference. So free trade, um, there's good, there's, there's pros and cons to anything you do. Um, and if you allow for a complete unrestricted free trade, which we're going to talk about some tariffs and things like that in a moment. But what ends up happening is rich countries end up dominating. And so we had this conversation before class started about uh, college athletes getting paid. And it's called name, image, and likeness, NIL. And so that being true, uh, what, if we allowed for unrestricted nil, complete unrestricted, basically the most wealthy colleges would have the best players because the elite players would get recruited by them and they would want to go there because they're going to get more money. It's obvious. And so what that would lead to is the wealthiest colleges dominating college sports, and there would just be no competition. And that's not good for athleticism. It's not good for business. And so we have to have some trade restrictions. Otherwise, wealthy countries would just dominate the global economy. And so if you're a sovereign country, you have to say, we're not going to allow the United States to just come in here and dominate because this is going to put all our local business owners out of business. And if our local people can't own businesses and make money, they're not going to be able to buy homes. They're not going to be able to support themselves. And we're going to have a country of poverty, you know, and so then eventually not say, say, well, we won't be here anyway, and they're going to take off. And so there, are, there does need to be limits on free trade. So, and it does talk about pros and cons here. The pros of free trade, the global market contains over 7 billion people. That's good. Productivity grows when countries produce goods and services in which they have a comparative advantage. Global competition and less costly imports keep prices down, so inflation does not curtail economic growth. Free trade inspires innovation for new products and keeps firms competitively challenged. An uninterrupted flow of capital gives countries access to foreign investments, which help keep interest rates low. So a lot of good things. Let's talk about some of the cons. Domestic workers, particularly in manufacturing-based jobs, can lose their jobs due to increased imports or production shifts, to low-wage global markets. And so during the Industrial Revolution in the United States, it used to be that everything's made in America. We set up a factory, we make it here, we sell it here. That's how it works. Well, then, along the way, soon after the Industrial Revolution, we realized, you know, we can actually do it, make a lot more money if we pay our, our workforce a lot less. And the only way to do that is to send these jobs to another country and open up a factory in another country and have these workers make in... You know, pennies on the dollar. And so if I can pay a worker in another country 10 to 20 cents on a dollar for every dollar I pay in labor, that means I get to keep 80% or 80 cents on the dollar myself. And so that looks really good if you're a business manager or CEO and you say, hey, owners, I'm going to make this company an extra $50 million next year by outsourcing all the labor. The owners will say, yeah, I kind of like that idea. We're going to give you a $5 million bonus. Everybody wins except who? The workers, know yeah, the workers don't win in that scenario, you know. And I've thought about it for a long time, and I've looked at it both ways. And in our system of capitalism, there's going to be winners and losers. That's a hard reality, you know. And it's it's not fun to see 300 people get laid off when a factory closes. That's not fun. It's not good. But that's the nature of the beast, you know. I mean, uh, people need to know when they go into a job that this job may not be permanent what's my plan B you know I mean the days of going into a company and saying I'm gonna work here for life that's the way it was two generations ago that doesn't exist today um, my dad's generation he bounced around for different jobs my generation uh, the normal like longevity for most private sector jobs is like five to seven years and you change jobs every five to seven years not to say that you can't work for a company for two or three decades it's just not the norm nowadays do you agree with that assessment or yeah. See, a lot of people, in my and, and, I mean, I've, pretty much everybody I've known uh, professionally has moved jobs quite a bit in their career. So I just wanted to give you an assessment of kind of where the world is now. Workers may be forced to accept pay cuts from employers who can threaten to move their jobs to lower-cost global markets. <clears throat> Moving operations overseas because of intense competitive pressure often means the loss of services, uh, service jobs and growing numbers of white-collar jobs. Domestic companies can lose their comparative advantage when competitors build advanced production operations in low-wage companies. So some pros and cons there. So we've talked about these two things, but what exactly are they? So comparative advantage is a country should sell to other countries those products that it produces most efficiently. If it's painful for us to manufacture radios, meaning that we have to have a lot of infrastructure to do it, we have to bring in a lot of parts and things like that, why in the world will we do that? You know if it's easy for another country to make radios let them do that they can do it quickly and easily but um, and the same thing is true for a lot of different things but what we can do well here is agriculture we've got a lot of farmland we've got a lot of um, equipment we've got a lot of people with knowledge on how to do agriculture and so we do that very well in the United States and we've increased our efficiency that key word we've increased our efficiency over the decades and centuries in the United States on how to manufacture crops and do it and, and maximize our square feet in the field in you know, our acreage so we we're, we're doing that and we export that I uh, know that we buy things from other countries that we need the absolute advantage is a country has a monopoly on producing a specific product or is able to produce it more efficiently than all other countries what's an example of a product or service that a country just has it on lockdown Ukraine. that Ukraine what Wheats? Yeah. They they produce a large chunk of the global supply. I forget how much it is, but it's significant. Yeah. What else is another example of a country that really has a, uh, uh, produces the majority of what it is on Earth? Uh, up until recently, uh, when you were talking about, like, the microchips. uh uh-huh. one. Yeah up until recently, and the reason why we're having to get into that business is because we realize that's a point of failure. Imagine if they had an incident where we just couldn't get chips for six months or a year. That would be very painful. I mean, it would jack up so many industries, airline, automotive, computer, education. You know, you keep, uh, inform- I mean, you just keep on going. I mean, cybersecurity. What else? Any other countries you can think of that have something they produce that gives them a almost an absolute advantage or close I'm to really a- sure it? Steel is that American it's, it's mixed. They're splendid okay. across, the, across the earth. That, that would be a comparative, comparative. I meaning they, they, they're good at it, but they don't have absolute Sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes. potatoes is us, man. Like we, we dominate sweet potatoes, yeah. So using the sweet potato example, we, we do that. We're good at it, so we produce it. And there's other countries on earth that would like to have some sweet potatoes, so they buy those from us because it's easier and we do it more efficiently. If, we, if we've got that down to a science, and our agriculture business is down to a science, I mean, we genetically modify crops nowadays to grow certain ways and to resist pesticide. That's how down to the science and how efficient we do these things. And so other countries say, okay, you guys got this. You run with it. We'll sell you guys something else, you know, that we can do very well out. So once again, comparative, you know, you're good at it. Uh, you specialize in it. Absolute is we dominate that. So... Um, so, what countries that owns the most U.S. debts in billions? Um, this is this is interesting It ties to something else. But you can see we have high investment from China and Japan in U.S. debt. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? People that invest in this country through they buy U.S. treasuries to invest in our government and get, invest in our country. And it's a there's a lot of reasons they do that. Part of it is they believe in the longevity of the United States. But there's also other reasons why they might do it. What do you guys think? Could, what do you think?
1: Because they're reliable on the US being someone who buys from them. China relies on us to buy from them. Japan pretty much relies on us to do of things
0: now. We have relationships with a lot of countries on Earth and some of them are friendly and some are not so friendly. But whether we, whether we like another country or not, uh, we have a codependency on on each other. Like, we've got to get along because if we don't, you're dependent on us to support your economy. We're dependent on you to support our economy. If you hurt us, it's hurting yourself, you know? So um, they want to support us to keep our economy raging because all the things we buy fuel that economy, you know? And so it's a codependency. And so, like... We're in this long standoff on Earth where we all have to prop each other up because we are so codependent that if China, for example, fails, that's bad for the entire global economy. If the United States fail, that's really, really bad. So uh, we've got – we're codependent. We've got to prop each other up. And so importing goods and services, products that are widely available in one's countries may be unavailable in another By working with producers in their native country, people can become major importers. And if you want to be a global seller, um, you're probably going to have to be doing importing and exporting. And so um, selling abroad may be easier due to less competition. Exporting provides a boost to the U.S. economy. Exports generate over 7,000 jobs uh, in the United States. Exports represent about 12% of the U.S. GDP and account for 11.5 million jobs. So... um, a lot of, lot of opportunity in exports. And so although Funko Pop line of toys aren't very lifelike, that, is, that has that hasn't stopped these big-headed figurines from becoming global sensation. Funko toys usually take on the appearance of famous fictional characters or pop culture icons, giving them widespread appeal to collectors around the world. As a result, each year Funko earns tens of millions of, from sales of its pop toys. Does a career in the global collectibles market seem appealing to you? What do you guys think? Can you see a career in Funko? Yeah, I used to, when I was growing up, it was not cool to be a geek. It just wasn't. And then when I grew up, I still am a geek, but now it's cool. You know, it does, like if you collect stuff like this, it's part of a pop culture icon. Does anybody own any Funkos in their house? One, be honest. I'm both. Two, two. No, no other Funkos. You're, you're just closet Funko people. They're not going to tell me about it. You know, I think I have a, a few. I I don't think I own any personally, but I do have some for my kids. But uh, they're cool. But um, one reason this popped up in the book and uh, in the presentation is that um, Funko does have a wide appeal to a lot of different constituencies. There's hundreds and hundreds of different characters. And so that being said, it's a great business because the products they produce appeal to a wide audience. And um, they're very affordable. You get them from basically 8 to $15. And so it, it has a wide appeal. A lot of people collect them. So you have a comment? No? What's up? Okay. Apparently, they just sold one. It's now the most highly valued baseball card in history. Really? It
1: went for eight figures. <sighs> yeah. Wow. So the one card.
0: Is it like the Horse Wagner Ricky card or something? I don't remember. Do you remember what it was? Myers
1: something. I okay, I don't know. Do you
0: know that? Okay. It was on Buzzfeed. I caught it just as they like popped it up today, but I was so shocked. It
1: was like twelve trillion something.
0: What? Yeah, it
1: was
0: a lot of money. Yeah, the collectible market, um, I, I do collect things. I, I've actually had a comic business on eBay for a while, and um, I collect comics, I collect books, and collect some toys. And uh, one of the sets the types of toys I collect are Lego sets. And um, the reason why, I, I don't, I've got some that I get my kids to open, but the ones I keep are the larger sets that I don't open at all. And sometimes I even send them off to get graded. Uh, that's expensive, but I have a long-term thesis. Lego actually appreciates on average eleven percent a year. So you start doing some math on that, and you realize this is a good long-term opportunity. Like if you look at sets from ten to twenty years ago, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a favorite set of mine, uh, Power Miners. I looked up online. Yeah. Some of the big sets that used to sell for like maybe eighty or ninety dollars back in like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, they're selling for like five hundred, seven hundred. Right. Now. What's up? Cause, like I used to. I love layers. Sure. I keep
1: them in the boxes because I realize they come in like a whole new batch of them like, every like year or two years because a new movie comes out for like right. Star Wars, and so they discontinue this whole. It's
0: sound. about it's about a one to three year life cycle yeah, on a that. yeah. And,
1: and so then it becomes rare. And if right. I have like a Millennium Falcon made. Sure. Like who you bought it in like two thousand or something that. Millennium Falcon is going to be worth so much because you can't buy it anymore. Absolutely.
0: And it's going to be special to that era. Well, one set that I want, that I didn't buy when I had the opportunity to buy it, is the Ghostbusters uh, Firehouse. The The MSRP one was like $3,350, but now the cheapest you can get it is is eight to to 1000 And that's already over 100% appreciation on that set. So my thesis is over two to three decades, some of these sets will be extremely valuable. And it's actually my thesis, my my, part of my investment strategy in this particular arena is just about two or three sets a year, big sets and just hold them for 30 years and see what happens. You know, so at the worst I'll have fun, but I'll be mean just when I'm like 70, I'll open all these things and have fun or uh, I might have a good, good investment long term. So we'll see. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, rest my voice for two seconds. All right. I'm going to jump back in. We got about 30 minutes or so. and We'll see if we can get through the rest of this lecture. So, um, <coughs> influencers. Has anybody ever wanted to be an influencer or tried to be an influencer? My kids, when they were like eight years old, they were like, I want to be an influencer when I grow up, you know. So, And that wasn't that long ago, but it's funny because before TikTok, it used to be called Musical.ly. Do you guys remember this? Yeah, and so they would do these Musical.ly videos, and now they go back in and look at them from like five, six years ago, and they're so like, oh my God, I can't believe I was doing this stuff. But, you know, I see them doing this, these, these videos, and I have two minds about it. Number one, I think uh, I think this is the world we live in now. And as an older person, and my like my parents, we look at it like this is weird, you know. But I think this is the world we live in now, you know. Like my generation played Nintendo; these kids play TikTok, you know. Um, I think there is some there's some negatives out there, but you have to take the bad with the good. I think on the whole, though, if it can make a kid feel better about themselves. Now, it can make them feel worse. There is some negatives from social media, and we talk about that. But if it makes them feel more confident and, and happy, I don't have a big problem with it, as long as they keep it clean and no, no problems. But influencers are a big deal. You know, they, 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 have, and they don't have to be like a celebrity to be an influencer. They can be famous for being famous, you know, like um, Mr. Beast, right? Anybody look at Mr. Beast videos? Yeah, you've seen him. He lives in Greenville. He's he's a local, North Carolina local. His guy, Chris, is my wife's cousin's son. So Chris's mom is my wife's first cousin. And so, you know, I actually saw Mr. Beast at a wedding, Chris's wedding. I was there, and this guy, he's probably worth five to $10 million now, and all he does is make these videos. They're really good videos, but he's an influencer, and if somebody wants him to sell a product, all he's got to do is say, hey guys, I love this book, and they're going to sell a thousand copies, you know, just because Mr. B said, Hey, I like this book. So, savvy brands are paying billions to promote their products on the feeds of famous social media figures. And so, they're powerful personalities. It's a great way to connect. And if you get a certain following or if you get a certain amount of views, you start getting people reach out to you and say, Hey, what's up with uh, an endorsement deal? Uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the guy who runs it just got uh, signed with a. I guess a vendor, uh, Blue Wire, they or they promote you know, podcasts, and he's going to start getting revenue off of that now. So really cool stuff. So uh, let's talk about balance of trade real quick. The total value of a nation's exports compared to its imports over a particular period. So surpluses and deficit. If you have a trade surplus, that means that you export more than you bring in. There's more going out than coming in. But if you have a deficit, that means you're bringing in more than you're putting out. And so you always want to try to have a surplus. You want to put out more than you bring in because if you think about it like in a household, if you spend uh, more than you're bringing in, you're running a deficit, right? And so you want to always be making sure that you're able to produce more than you pull in just from a money standpoint because let's say that... Let's just use some rough figures. Let's say we import... $100 hundred billion dollars worth of stuff you're just throwing around, figure. but we only produce fifty billion dollars worth of uh, stuff in return, well, that's a fifty billion dollar deficit. And on a ten-year timeline, I mean, that really balloons to five hundred billion. And so, uh, you want to try to have that as close to break even as possible, because uh, you don't want to uh, become a country where you just buy stuff and you never produce stuff. And so, uh, you want to try to keep that neutral. Uh, The balance of payments is the difference between money coming into a country from exports and the money leaving the country from imports, plus money flows from other factors such as tourism, foreign aid, military expenditures, and foreign investment. The goal is to have more money flowing into a country and and then out, which is a favorable balance. And unfavorable balance is when more money flows out of a country. And so let's take that to the micro. Uh, I mentioned some Johnson County statistics. Another interesting statistic is that every day in Johnson County, this is blow your mind, about 55,000 people get up and go to work in, in Wake County. Did you know this? 55,000 people in Johnson County get up and they go work in Wake County. Why is that a problem for Johnson County? Because that's 55,000 lunches that are not being bought in Johnson County that's 55,000 gas station visits that probably are not happening in Johnson County. You know, that's 55,000 shopping experiences or grocery store visits. And so that's increasing the revenue or the inflow to, to Wake County, and it's actually increasing the outflow of Johnson County because those dollars move with those people. That's, you know? that's kind of a balancing act, too, though, because...
1: Without our proximity to RTP, those people wouldn't be
0: moving here. Right. And then they're buying houses. And yep. So you could bring up a good point. Housing does offset that if they're buying houses in Johnson County. So there's there's good, there's pros and cons. There are pros and cons with everything. And so, um, but we want to try to reverse that trend. And I believe when I, I was on a workforce alliance call earlier today, and they're trying to reduce it by 20% by 2030 is the goal. So trim, I think, I guess 10,000 of those jobs off that and reduce it that are leaving and keep more jobs in Johnson County. Because as an example, if all those jobs stayed in Johnson County, I mean, it would be a huge boon for industry. I mean, if everybody worked here, they would be eating lunch here, going to grocery stores here, going to gas stations here, and all the other auxiliary services. Uh, On another note, Johnson Community College has, give or take, 3,000 students. But yet there's over 30,000 students in... Johnson County Public Schools right and so there's there's a difference there you know like and the those students tell me if I'm wrong okay you're still in high school correct and so do you think that your guidance counselors in high school kind of put put the idea with with you guys that you should go to a four-year college or a community college what do you think is emphasized more right that 's good what would for everybody else is the language in the high schools leaning you towards a four year college or a community college four year is that the consensus everybody else when I was in, when I was in high school, my guidance counselors never talked about community college that I can remember. they always talked about you got to go get a four year degree and being straight up with you guys like I, I want to make sure i 'm telling you guys the straight up truth about everything, and the truth is is that a lot of people don't need to go get four year degrees a day because there's so much more lucrative opportunities at the two year level. Like you could go get a degree in IT or healthcare or another skill based trade and start out making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars with a two-year degree versus going to get a four-year degree in a discipline that may not have a skill attached to it. Example, one of my friends in high school, she went to Wilmington, got a four-year degree in psychology came right back home to Sampson Community College and got a two-year degree in nursing, and now she's a nurse. And she has a four-year degree in psychology. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not a skill-based career, you know. And so I just want to put that out there, that you guys are doing a good thing by being here. Um, so I know I went off on a tangent, but that's okay. But we were talking about inflows and outflows of countries and counties. Uh, you want to make sure you're bringing in money to your area. So dumping is the selling of products in a foreign country at a lower prices than those charged in the producing company. Dumping is prohibited in the United States and in a lot of countries, too. Like, if we can produce, uh, let's say we can produce sweet potatoes very cheaply, and we go to another country and they also grow sweet potatoes, well, we might say we can, we can sell you sweet potatoes at half the price your local farmers can grow them for and we could just dump millions of pounds of them on you guys. They would say, well, that's fine, but we're not going to buy them because that would put our local farmers out of business. So we're going to limit, we're going to put a, a, a tariff on how many you can bring in, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And so the largest exporting nations in the world and the largest U.S. trade partners. So the blue are the largest or uh, large export nations, and the yellow are both and the orange are top trading partners. And so um, you can see China, Canada, Mexico, France, Germany, UK are, are doing both. Um, United States is a large exporter. And our, one of our top trading partners is India. And I think Taiwan is there too. It's hard to see on this map. Um, just to give you a visual of some of this. And so these are some questions that the chapter talks about for test prep. What are two of the main arguments favoring the expansion of U.S. business into global markets? There could be several, but the population is only so small, so big in in the Western Hemisphere. 90% of the world population is in Asia, Africa, Europe, uh, and um, Australia, basically. So there's a lot more opportunities abroad. Um, What else could be another argument for why the U.S. should seek global partners or global trade? We just talked about some of this stuff. There's other opportunities in other countries to buy products that other people can produce easily where we might not be able to produce them as easily. So why would we build radios in the United States when we can buy them from China and they're really good at doing that? So that is an advantage. What is comparative advantage and what are some of the examples of this concept at work in the United States? So remember when we said comparative advantage means that we're really good at it but we don't necessarily dominate. Uh, An example is the steel industry. We, we produce that, but we don't dominate the steel industry as part of it. Um, how are a nation's balance of trade and balance of payment determined? We're looking at cash going in and cash coming out, or in and out of cash, and basically we determine what our imports and exports are and see the balance between the two. And we want to have a trade surplus, ideally. What is meant by the term dumping? We just talked about that. It's where you go in and you dump lots of cheap product in a country, U.S. doesn't allow that it's because it could destroy local producers. All right. So this is a um, kind of a strategy for reaching global markets. So licensing, e- exporting, franchising, contract manufacturing, international joint ventures and strategic alliance, and foreign direct investment. This, these are individual strategies. And this is the least amount of commitment, and that's the most amount of, of, of uh, com- commitment. So licensing is where I say I'm going to pay you a fee to be able to sell your product in this country. So like if you manufacture T-shirts, I'm going to say I'm going to pay you a royalty to be able to sell your T-shirts. And I might even make them over here too to save you some shipping. Exporting is where I make something here, send it over there. Franchising, we talked about Krispy Kreme earlier, but that's where you buy the right to open a, a business in a box. You buy the right to run this business in whatever country that you operate. Contract manufacturing, T-shirt example. Let's say you did get successful with the T-shirt business. You might contact a manufacturer to say, I like manufacturing these T-shirts, but it's darn expensive in the United States to do it. Can you make them for me over there at a cheaper rate? Uh, That's what contract manufacturing is. International joint ventures and strategic alliance. This is where one or two or more companies or individuals come together. And they say, we want to have a strategic alliance because you're really good at this, I'm really good at that, and together we can do something special. Using the Krispy Kreme example, I don't see why Krispy Kreme and Starbucks don't come together. Like, you could go to Krispy Kreme and get a nice cup of coffee at the same time. That seems like a, a match made in heaven. I don't know. So foreign direct investment is when we actually, this is the most expensive, we actually go over there and build something. We're going to go and invest and build, build a physical presence in that country, that's what foreign direct investment is. But um, we, the more committed you are, the more potential profits you can make. If you're building that infrastructure, you can now produce products and services cheaper in that location than having to ship and do all that stuff. You, you're tied to that country in a material way. All right, so this is a question to ask: What is the term for a global strategy in which a firm allows a foreign company to produce its product in exchange for a fee? So, we just talked about this. I know, but I wasn't listening, dudes. Gosh. It's licensing. You pay a fee, you get your license to use that product. So, All right. So, a global strategy which a firm licensed or allows a foreign company to produce its product in exchange for a fee or royalty. Licensing can benefit a firm by gaining revenue it wouldn't have had otherwise, spending little or no money to produce or market their products. And so, yeah, and... Licensing is a low barrier, meaning that if a, if a person says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to increase your revenue and all you have to do is say yes. Basically, you say yes, we sign a contract, I'm going to license this product from you and I'm going to you know, put a logo on it or whatever and sell it in my country and everybody wins. You know, I get to make some money, you get to make some money. It's a nice thing. Licensing is a, is a, is a, is a good opportunity. So this is an example of licensing. Marvel has licensed many companies to make products related to successful film franchises like Guardians of the Galaxy. Do you think Marvel licensed product will maintain their global popularity with new, new, new generations of viewers? Do you think this is a, a flash in the pan or do you think it'll sustain for a long time? Do you think Marvel's days are numbered or do you think it's gonna to continue to be a, a big franchise? I don't know. I think it's you think it's numbered? Yeah, I even me as a comic book fan when the last Avengers movie happened, uh, what is it, Endgame, I kind of fell off after that. I was like, eh, I don't watch the Disney shows. The new movies are just okay, you know, so that's, that's what I, I think some of the movies have
1: quality and going down. So. Yeah, the stories, what do you think?
0: My kids, I don't think any of them ever watched a whole Star Wars movie, so that's not good, you know, for these franchises. Disney paid, I forget, it was several billion dollars for Star Wars. I don't know how much they paid for Marvel, but uh, I think they've done a good thing for the short term, but you have to ask, is this long-term sustainable? You know, are they going to... I mean, but but all it takes is one of these movies to be a breakout success that does crazy numbers, you know, so a billion dollars at the box office pays a lot of bills, you know, so... I don't know. We'll see. This is all subjective. Um, so Exporting Assistance Center, the EAC, and the exporting, Export Trading Companies. So EAC helps small and medium-sized businesses with direct exporting by providing exporting assistance and trade finance support. <laughs> so if I'm a small business and I'm trying to, do, to upscale my export, there's a lot of barriers that I need to know about. Like some countries only accept certain products. Some things are taboo to ship in the mail. And so an exporting assistance center will help me do that better. Um, An export trading company helps companies with indirect exporting by negotiating and establishing trading relationships. And so both of these are ways to facilitate exporting for small and medium-sized businesses. So franchising, this is the next thing we talked about. So we talked about land licensing. Franchising is a contractual agreement whereby someone with a good idea for a business sells others the right to use the name and sell a product or service in a given territory in a specified manner. Large and small franchisers can be successful in foreign countries. Franchisers need to adapt their products to the countries they serve. Yeah, um, franchises are everywhere, all around it. And one reason they're so successful is because it's a proven system of business. When I If I buy a McDonald's franchise, I know exactly what I'm getting. They can tell me pretty much what my daily sales are going to be based on traffic patterns so that I know pretty much my daily sales, my annual sales. I know exactly how much my labor is going to cost. I know how much my royalty is going to be. They have it all mapped out for me. They say, we've been doing this a long time. This is what your numbers look like. This is how much it's going to cost you to go into it. Uh, And pretty much any significant size franchise, you're going to know that information. You're going to be able to find out, you know, what the risks and benefits are. Um, The benefit to them is they get another operator that's willing to step in and help manage that business and they're going to get a royalty off of that. Uh, and the benefit to you is you'll get to keep any and all profits. And so um, I had a friend that, that started, they went into a franchise. Anybody like firehouse subs? Nobody's a fan, just one? Um, who? What's your favorite sub place? If you're going to get a sub, what do you go get? Subway? Publix. What's it called? Publix? Publix. Yeah. So uh, what's the other one? Jimmy John's? anybody like that? Not really. No big. Not not a lot of sub folks in here. Is this what I'm getting? Okay. Subway's terrible, man. What's mean, wrong with uh, you? So. Uh, the one about the
1: oaks? Yeah.
0: I don't. I don't know. What is it? What do you What do you think? Uh,
1: so I grew up in Florida, and there's a sub place called Larry's Giant Subs. Okay. And they're like the only place we can go to eat subs at. Or like they don't have 'em up here. Yeah. So,
0: I worked at a place called Zero Subs. That they don't have those around here either. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't. I guess Firehouse would be close to that, but not really. It's it's a different concept. But anyway, the reason I mention it is my friend opened. He started a Firehouse franchise, and then he started a second one. Then he started a third one. And him trying to manage all three and trying to keep all three of them staffed, it drove him to the edge. Man, he ended up. Crashing and burning, he had to sell all his franchises and get out of that business. It just—it wasn't sustainable. I mean, if you've got good employees that'll stay with you, yes, but if he was having to drive to all three every day to try to help manage that business, it was very difficult. And so, Jersey Mike's—that's Jersey Mike's, good. I like Jersey Mike's. That's yeah, I yeah, they're—they're they're, expen- they're all expensive though. So, good stuff. All right, um, global franchises. Tired of studying and want a quick snack? How about a piping hot pizza topped with eel, mussels, cream cheese, and olives? Like this one. International chains serve pies like these around the globe in order to appeal to different tastes. How can franchises ensure their products are appropriate for global markets? Um, I know the guy who owns Highway 55. It used to be Andy's. Anybody ever eat there? Highway 55 Andy's? You like that place? Um, His name's Kenny Moore. He lives in my town, and um, his family goes to my church. But Kenny's got an interesting story. It started in Goldsboro Mall uh, about 30 years ago. And um, Andy's his son. That's why he named it Andy's. But when he tried to expand beyond the borders of North Carolina, he realized that name was copyright. So he had to change it to Highway 55. But he actually was opening up a store in the UAE, United Arab Arab Emirates. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Uh, And um, he said that the meat, they don't eat beef in that country. They don't eat cow. So they had to use a different animal for their hamburgers. and. I don't want to swear it's camel that he said that they were serving, but I think it was camel meat that they were eating. I mean, they got a lot of camels over there, so, yeah. Uh, But that's the compromise they made to be able to serve. And if you look at franchises around the world and look at some of their menu items, they are different, you know. Like McDonald's in different countries in Europe is not like McDonald's here. Like um, you hear about people eating mayonnaise on their french fries. Does anybody do that? No, but they do it in Europe, so, you know, that kind of stuff. So, But, yeah, um, so you want to... The reason why this is, comes up is if you are going to enter a different country, there's cultural norms that you have to adapt to, and you want to know what your audience is going to be looking for. So um, I read recently, too, that Domino's is going out of business in Italy. Why would Domino's go out of business in Italy? In my opinion, I mean, like... Like, Domino's is toward the bottom of, of takeout pizza, to me. It used to be better, in my opinion. But, like, we've talked about the pizza before in here, you know. So if you're going to have next, close to the bottom of takeout pizza in Italy, the capital of Italian food, yeah, there's probably a reason why it's going out of business. And so if you would ask me, is it a good idea for Domino's to open up in Italy? Probably not, you know. I mean, these guys, like, fresh uh, – they're probably insulted by it. If I, I mean, honestly – they're like, you're serving me this this trash pizza when we can get fresh stuff made by grandma down the street, and it's awesome, you know? So, yeah, they probably weren't sold by Domino's. So, um, Dunkin' Dun- Donut Flavors in Taiwan is an example. I actually saw some of this recently. Sweet potato donuts, honeydew melon, green apple, kiwi fruit, mango, pineapple, strawberry, and corn crumb soft rice cake. Ooh, delicious. So, yeah, but this is just show you, like... Uh, you wouldn't find this on the shelf in America, but over there, this is the fla- the flavors they like. So, uh, world of options under the arches. McDonald's has been the undisputed king of global food franchising for decades. Has anybody ever seen The Founder about McDonald's? Great movie, right? We may watch it in here at some point. But McDonald's has been careful to include regional taste on its menus along with the uh, usual Big Mac and fries. Other global items cater to nation's specific customs and dietary restrictions. The company could face more challenges as it continues to adapt, uh, adapting and expanding further into global markets. Yeah. And so this picture is an example of uh, McDonald's in Asia. And the menu, if you walked in there would be different than a menu down the street, you know, because different cultures and customs uh, have different uh, flavor preferences. And so uh, that's at McDonald's in Malaysia. They have the Berber Ayam M. McD, which is chicken strips and porridge with onions, ginger, and shallots. That does not sound good to me, but over there, they love it. In Egypt, they have the Macarabia, which is grilled chicken with tahini, well, tahina, I'm sorry, sauce, lettuce, tomato, and onion on Arabic bread. In Japan, uh, they have teritama, which is a teriyaki burger topped with an egg. In Germany, Want a beer with your burger? You can order one at the German stores. In Israel, it operates using kosher kitchens. And so this is just to kind of give you a snapshot as to how global chains operate a little differently. They have to adapt to the local norms. If you tried to take a franchise that's successful in the United States and adapt it to a foreign country without making changes, you're probably going to have a problem like Italy had with Domino's. You're going to find that Uh, It's just not as popular as it is there because of different tastes and preferences. So, strategies for reaching global markets. Contract manufacturing, uh, this is uh, the third thing. So we went to licensing, to franchising, to contract manufacturing. A foreign company's production of private label goods to which a domestic company then attaches its own brand, name, or trademark, part of a broad category of outsourcing. Can, can help companies experiment in new markets without incurring heavy startup costs such as building a manufacturing plant temporarily meet an unexpected increase in orders. And so if I have a brand label that's very popular in the United States, I can contract somebody abroad and work out a, a manufacturer and, and distribution without me having to make them over here and ship them over there. Uh, that saves a lot of time and effort by doing that. Joint venture is the next thing on that spectrum we talked about. A partnership in which two or more companies altered from different countries join to undertake a major project often mandated by countries such as condition of doing business can increase a company's footprint and global growth and can be used by competing companies to join forces. So once again, if you're good at this and I'm good at that, we may come together and do something special together. Uh, The benefits of a joint venture is that we share technology and risk. We share marketing and management expertise. The entry into the markets where foreign companies are often not allowed unless goods are produced locally. The drawbacks, um, stolen or obsolete technology. Yeah, if somebody sees something that I do very well, they may take that for their own uh, benefit. Becoming too large and flexible. One partner might break ties. And it might be one-sided where one person is doing the whole thing and the other one's not. So, All right, strategic alliance and we'll stop here after this today, but it's a long-term partnership between two or more companies established to help each company build competitive market advantages. They typically don't share cost, risk, management, or profits. Strategic lines provide broad access to markets, capital, and technical expertise. Usually, it's just a short-term thing too. We came together to do this one thing. As an example, um, you might have beverage companies come together to throw a big event. <coughs> they may share the cost of the events. But at the end of the day, we're competitors, you know. But d- by doing this strategic alliance, it does benefit both of us because it does allow for more visibility of all our products. So that they may have a world's fair to benefit. Like you can see beer manufacturers, for example, saying we're going to have a, a, a festival. Everybody comes together, and it's co-sponsored by these, you know, manufacturers. But that is just a strategic alliance for a short-term uh, venture, not necessarily a commingling of of business resources. All right, guys, uh, we're going to take a time out here t- for today. If you have any questions, comments, shoot me an email. Uh, don't forget your essay paper, due in about two weeks, September 13th. Um, and if you need anything in the meantime, just shoot me an email and I'll see you guys on Thursday. Don't forget about your Chapter 2 located in McGraw Hill Connects. Uh, just scroll down, it'll say Chapter 2 Assessments. Okay, guys? All right, see you Thursday.